Amen. All right. Well, as difficulties go, this is great, but it's not the worst thing in the world. Let's be honest. You can tune out and tune back in. Now, funnily enough, with a cool thing happening outside, when I was a teenager, which was far too long ago now, I was a nerd. And you might be looking at me and going, you haven't outgrown that, Mark. And uh, bless you. Fair enough. I went to a selective high school, uh, which is uh, a place where you warehouse all the nerds together and run experiments on maximising social awkwardness. And so when I was at my nerd school, uh, the image I had in my mind, in my head, for what it meant to be a student was that I was an athlete of the mind. It's fairly clear that this kind of frame is not actually going to be a real athlete, but I could manage athlete of the mind. And so this image really worked its magic on me so much so that like, I started to really think, like, you know, treat exams like races. And I started to use the word, to my shame, I used the word taper in preparation for exams. Like I had a perfect timing to get ready for my Olympic moment, which was the HSC. And I was that pathetic. You can just laugh at me now. It's okay. The images of ourselves in our head are often definitional of how we act. We, we, we think of ourselves, we naturally incline ourselves to think of ourselves through metaphors as a way of shaping our identity and our actions in the world. So people will say, I'm a warrior, or I'm a princess, or I'm a warrior princess. I had the same moment last time on there. There we go. We want to sit there and go to define ourselves in terms of these categories, or maybe we have a guiding image or metaphor for life, like life is a journey, or life is an adventure, or life's a canvas, paint it how you want it. Because images matter, they change how you see yourself, they change how you act. And in this passage from the Bible, Jesus opens with four different animal images, sheep, wolves, snakes, doves. And it's like going to the zoo, except you're talking about people. And the context of his comments is in the 15 verses prior in Matthew. So in the 15 verses prior, Matthew 10 verses 1 to 15, he's been dealing with his select group of 12 disciples who he's been with for the last five to six chapters. And what he's been doing is they've been observing him as he's been doing the stuff. And then in chapter 10, a change happens in Matthew where it moves from observation to practicing day. Theory's over. It's time for you to put into place what you've been watching. I'm going to send you out and you're going to do what I've been doing. And so verse 15 verses, the job description's been given. And the travel arrangements have been given. The job description is preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And the travel arrangements, they're reasonably sparse, which is when you get to a town, hope for the best. (laughs) Okay? Someone will be there and they'll be hospitable, we hope. Now in verse 16, he moves to the weather conditions for the trip, the cultural weather conditions. He wants to describe what's the atmosphere going to be like as I send you out to preach the kingdom. And here's where the animal images come in. He says, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Now, in my experience, people do not aspire to be called sheep. It's not like a longed for, it's not really the coolest of animals. 
Like if we popped into kids' church at the earlier service and kind of ran in and said, hey, Johnny, if you could be any animal, what would you be? Unlikely Johnny's going to reply to you, give me a sheep. I just want to be a dumb follower. That's me. Now, to be fair, there are versions of sheep that are more desirable. So there are many a sporting team called the Rams. But you see, Rams have horns. But the Los Angeles NFL team is unlikely tomorrow to rename themselves the Los Angeles Sheep. Okay? We'll wool you to death. I mean, this is not going to happen. Because intuitively, sheep is not an inspiring image. And yet in verse 16, Jesus uses it to describe us. But the stress is not on us being dumb, or even on us being dumb followers. The emphasis here is that sheep are vulnerable. I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. All other things being equal, wolf's going to win that encounter. So immediately what that does is it defines mission in terms of vulnerability in the face of hostility. Note that he doesn't define Christians with the warrior animal. Weakness is their way. They reach out from the humble situation. And the sheep, notice, don't turn into wolves as a response to the situation. Then you get two more images which further define, I think, how to be a sheep among wolves. Interesting images again. It says, be shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. These are interesting images again. Because first thing, snakes. Not exactly the most positive poster boy in the Bible. Garden of Eden, anyone? Early chapters? Fairly negative image of snakes, but here it's being used positively. And the positive association is, if there's anything we can say about snakes is they're clever. That's the association biblically. Snakes are clever. And so here the encouragement is to be shrewd as snakes. Now you could also translate that word prudent or wise. Maybe in today's language we might say thoughtful. So Here's the first insight, how to be a sheep among wolves. Use your brain. Use your brain. You might want to be an idiot for Jesus, but at the end of that, you're still an idiot. Be shrewd. Be wise. Be thoughtful. Because being shrewd here is not the idea of being cunning or deceptive. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. It says, be shrewd as snakes, but innocent as doves. Now, that word innocent there is the idea of being pure or unmixed in motives. So that when you put the two ideas together, it's be smart without compromising your integrity. So how to be a sheep among wolves? Be smart and innocent. Don't needlessly provoke and don't compromise. Don't agitate and don't capitulate. Because the imagery is trying to get you to lean into a tension. It recognises that when we face hostility for being a Christian, our hearts can be tempted to one of two bad responses. The first is to pour fuel on the fire. In the face of the fire, you pour fuel on it. Or you just immediately run from the fire. 
but neither is a good option. See, the task of a Jesus follower is not to be a fire starter, nor is it to be a coward. Our focus is showing the truth and the beauty and the goodness of the reign of God. But we need to be clear that no matter how thoughtful and how innocent you are, a disciple of Jesus will still experience hostility. Because look at what Jesus goes on to say in verse 18. On my account, you will be handed over to local councils. He says, you will be flogged in the synagogues. Verse 19 is brutally blunt. When they arrest you. Not if, but when. Now, the specific details of your experience probably don't necessarily match up with these details, but the point is clear. No matter how thoughtful and innocent you are, a disciple of Jesus will still experience hostility. So much so that in verse 22, it says, you will be hated by everyone because of me. And in case we didn't fully digest it, Jesus says in verses 24 and 25, the student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, a demonic term, how much more the members of his household? There's a general mood in our culture that everyone is always cool with Jesus. Like Christians, non-Christians, they'll say similar things on this point. They'll say things like, I like Jesus, but they hate the church. Jesus is awesome, man. Everybody likes Jesus. Jesus is my own boy, okay? There was a band in the 1990s, an avant-garde art rock band called King Missile. They had a song, Jesus Was Way Cool. They weren't Christians. They just thought Jesus was way cool. Everybody loves Jesus, which is half right. Because it is true in the Gospels that Jesus walks around and he coasts on a sea of popularity at times, a wave of popularity. But at other times, he's accused of being a drunk, demon-possessed, son of a carpenter. He's ultimately put to a violent death. Nobody should think loving and following Jesus is somehow the automatic means to a trouble-free life because he himself never modelled that. And yet I do want to make an additional point about the hostility experienced by Jesus' disciples, which is a disciple's experience of hostility should only be because of him, not them. Does that make sense? A disciple's experience of hostility should be because of him, not them. Because there's a really terrible way to use texts like these. And that is, it's when you believe that because you are a Christian, anything you do is automatically endorsed by Jesus. You can be a total tool, but it's cool, because I'll just slide that stupidity under the banner of the name of Jesus, and everything will be okay. Like I said, if you're an idiot for Jesus, you're still just an idiot. And slapping a fish sticker or an in Jesus name isn't going to rescue your stupidity. It isn't going to redeem your evil. Indeed, I want to suggest to you, that's taking Jesus' name in vain. 
Now, you might be vaguely aware of the third commandment. It's actually over my right shoulder today. Um, where it says, you shall not misuse the name of your Lord, of the Lord your God. And sometimes translated, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, when I grew up, that was always associated with when you're swinging a hammer and you hit your thumb, you're not allowed to say Jesus Christ. Because that's all everybody told. That was what blasphemy was. Now, I have no great affection for turning Jesus into a swear word when you mash your digits. But that's actually not what that commandment is about, pretty much at all. Taking God's name in vain meant to associate God's name with things he would never endorse. That's what taking God's name in vain is. It means to take God's name and apply it to things that are completely out of keeping with his character. And so when we do stupidity and evil in Jesus' name, we don't redeem the action, we trash his reputation. That's what we do. You will be hated by everyone because of him. That is not because of what I am doing that is needlessly offensive. This hostility assumes not my stupidity, it assumes my authentically following Jesus. And so never seek hostility. Never seek provocation for the sake of it. Fix your eyes on Jesus and let consequences take care of themselves. Because the truth is, you don't know when the conflict and the hostility comes. That's, I think, why when Jesus says in verse 19, do not worry about what to say, I don't think that's an encouragement to preachers like me not to prepare a script. We've probably been through some talks like that. They weren't fun. Oh, the Holy Spirit's just speaking through me. Maybe not. No, no, no. This isn't an encouragement to wing it. This is an acknowledgement that so often when we are called on the carpet in the midst of hostility, it's in a moment when we don't have any time to prepare. It's in a moment that you don't know when it's coming. And you can't prepare a script. And the assumption is when you live a Jesus-shaped life and when you shape your life by Jesus-shaped speech then you are going to get called on the carpet at some point. And what's important is not that you have a script, but that you have a habit. That you have the habit of a Jesus-shaped posture towards the world and a Jesus-shaped speech towards the world so that you can speak grace and truth in the moment and God will bless you and be with you in that moment. Because I don't know your story. Most of you are strangers to me. I know a precious few of you, but most of you are strangers to me. I'm a stranger to you. I cannot ever claim to have experienced the levels of hostility that are in this text. I cannot claim to have experienced that kind of hostility, but I can guarantee almost all of us have been at a party where the conversation takes a sharp right turn and everybody's eyes are on you. Well, what do you think about that? And there's that moment where you're fumbling for your notes and going, geez, if I knew I was going to be answering serious ethical questions this evening, I would have done a little bit more prep. The most available emotion you feel in those moments is fear. That's the thing that's immediately accessible to you, which, by the way, makes verse 26 all the more jarring, doesn't it? Because Jesus says, do not be afraid. Actually, he says it more than once. Do not be afraid of them. And you want to say, Jesus, who are you kidding? 
Who are you kidding? It's like Jesus is sending around one of those everything is fine memes. You know, it's all okay. Nothing to see here. Jesus has just said 27 reasons to be afraid, but it's okay. I'm going to say do not be afraid three times. That'll fix it. Do not be afraid. Or in the olden days translation, they used to translate this fear not. Super common phrase in the Bible. Now again, there's a really terrible way to understand this text, which sees pain and suffering and death as being regarded as trivial by Jesus here. The things Jesus describes here are threatening, and they are real, and it does hurt. And it's a terrible thing to be arrested, and it's a terrible thing to be flogged, and it's a terrible thing to die. There is no sense in which Jesus is sending around and everything is fine meme. But yet three times Jesus says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Now, in a moment, we are going to look at the reasons Jesus gives in the text. But before we do, I want to offer a little sidebar, which doesn't actually come out of the text, but is more a cultural observation of our present moment. There's a lot of fear about today amongst Christians. There's a lot of fear about. There's whole Christian marketing campaigns that are built on fear. I've been part of them. You just want to create a permanent sense of crisis. The dollars roll in a little bit more when you do that. But what you notice about the way fear works is that when you wallow in fear, it deforms a Jesus-shaped life. Fear leads to anger. Fear leads to snark. Fear leads to a posture of protecting your own turf. And more importantly, fear takes you away from joy. It takes you away from gentleness. It takes you away from kindness and generosity. I'm convinced culturally, from what I see in front of me, you can't grow the fruit of the Spirit from the soil of fear. That's my cultural read of what I see around me. And so Jesus doesn't specifically say that here in this text, but earlier in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, he's already preached this. You have heard that it was said eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. You can't grow those habits in the soil of fear. But in this passage, Matthew chapter 10, what does Jesus say about fear? He says three basic points. Keep talking. There's bigger concerns and you are known. Have a look with me at verse 26 says, so do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. I'll level with you. This is one of those sections of Scripture where I think I know what the intended outcome is, but I'm not entirely sure of the details. 
So when Jesus says there's something hidden that's going to be disclosed, is he talking about the fact that the gospel I've told you in private is eventually going to be made public? Or is he saying, no, 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 the lies and slanders and injustices that have been given to you and labelled you are eventually going to be overturned in the final court of opinion and the truth will out and everybody will know the truth about who you are? I'm not actually sure. Maybe it's both. But the outcome seems clear in verse 27. Keep talking. Keep talking. There's one thing I notice also in present culture. Fear often keeps thoughtful Christians silent. Have you noticed that? Been around a lot of shrewd Christians. They don't want to cause offence. And they feel like the only option is silence. We have this weird moment where it feels like rogue Christians are loud and shrewd Christians are quiet. And you're kind of sitting there going, if only we could get that swapped on socials, the world might be a slightly better place. Because the reality is, don't be afraid, keep talking. Be shrewd as a snake, innocent as a dove, keep your integrity, but keep talking. The good news of the kingdom is meant for sharing. That's the first thing he says. Don't give up talking. Verse 28 then says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Every parent with a child knows the experience of having to learn how to rank fears, okay? Because children, you get to be afraid of a fair few things at various points in their life. Kids have legit fears about very small things, okay? Fears about school, fears about bugs, fears about swimming, fears about food, fears about the dark, fears about anything, okay? Kids are good at fear when they want to be, except when they miss fearing things that really matter. So there's these moments in your life as a parent where you're sitting there going, why are you afraid of broccoli, but you're not afraid of playing soccer next to the freeway? Like it's just, you, you get this all the time. You say, can we just prioritize some things properly here, people? There are bigger concerns here than vegetables, namely that car and your head. But you see, kids aren't the only ones who do this. Adults do this. There's the person who's more afraid of doctors than they are of their undiagnosed cancer. There's the grown-up who's more afraid of conversation than they are of loneliness. You want to say, prioritise your fears. Get the big things right. And Jesus' point here is simple. If there is a God and life is more than this present moment, then everything changes. If there is a God and eternity is real, then there are bigger concerns than temporary comfort. So when you suffer for being a Christian, please hear me saying that, when you suffer for being a Christian, the New Testament regularly works from a temporary eternal framework. It says it's illogical to sacrifice what is eternal for that which is temporary. It's like a classic quote from the missionary Jim Elliot, who said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep 
to gain what he cannot lose. It isn't that pain and difficulty and even death do not matter. They do matter, but there's a bigger rock to shape your life around. There are bigger concerns than temporary comfort. And yet, and yet, and yet, I need to say that whenever I hear somebody say that to me, it nearly always feels heartless. Nearly always feels like someone's up the front sitting there going, build a bridge, think about eternity. I'm kind of like, that just seems to miss the point. That just seems to be uncaring. It's interesting then that Jesus straight away in his final point on fear speaks far more tenderly. Verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. There's a deep longing within all of us to know that we are known. See, when you follow Jesus, God sees your sacrifice. Pretty much no one else really truly will. For every single human being, no one but yourself and God actually really knows when you've really sacrificed. You tell other people, they often don't believe you. And you can never fully download all that data into people's heads, can you? This is the pain I've been through. These are the moments when I didn't retaliate. These are the moments when I held my tongue. These are the moments when I blessed rather than cursed. Nobody else has got a record of that except for you, and even you'll probably forget. But God knows. God sees your sacrifice. God knows your pain. He knows your life and experience, and it is not trivial to him. And he knows every hair on your head. It's a remarkable image, no matter how unseen your life feels to everybody else. And so your suffering for being a Christian isn't because he's abandoned you. It's because he's working through you to proclaim his rule and reign through your sacrificial service. Do not be afraid. You are worth more than you realise. God knows what you're doing. Yes, in the big, but other people probably know about the big. It's the small. It's the small things that people don't know about. And God knows all of that. So how do we tie all this together? The first thing to say is Jesus is amazing and brilliant. He is the friend of sinners. He is a stunning storyteller. He's the most gracious person you could ever meet. He is so attractive to a lost and broken world. Anyone can come to Jesus and find in him full and complete forgiveness. And yet there's a parallel truth, which is to be forgiven is to follow. To be forgiven is to follow. And that following is going to make you stand out. No matter how thoughtful and innocent you are, a disciple of Jesus will still experience hostility. For all sorts of reasons, when you forgive those who sin against you, when you refuse to join in with what you are convinced is sin, when you welcome the stranger, when you put generosity over personal pleasure, when you love your enemies, it is beautiful, but it is also controversial. And the way of Jesus cuts across every kind of situation 
to challenge it. It cuts across the politics of left and right. It cuts across every age bracket. Jesus stirs pots. And it's confronting when in verse 35, Jesus says, I have not come to bring peace to the earth, which seems completely counterintuitive to the image of Jesus that most of us have in our mind. That our peace-loving Jesus would divide families, but division isn't his number one goal. It's not like he's got a home wrecker on his instant Insta bio. That's not his intention, it's a result. It's a result because Jesus has come to give us a whole new way of life. And when you experience the free forgiveness of Jesus, you also switch allegiance to his lordship. And that allegiance is total. It's total. And so there's no burning desire for the Christian to wreck anything, but there's also the, the, the fundamental conviction that there will be defining moments where sometimes your loyalties will clash. There are moments when my loyalty to Jesus means I cannot be loyal to my nation. I cannot be loyal to my sporting team. I cannot be loyal to my friendship group, my workplace. There are even moments when my loyalty to Jesus will mean that I cannot be loyal to my family. And in those moments, you have a choice. You have a choice. The first choice is, is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worth it? Because we suffer for all sorts of things, some good, some bad, but we suffer best when we suffer for what is worth it. So the husband who suffers by sacrificing a high-paying job so that his family might be blessed suffers well. The friend who suffers without sleep so that their depressed friend might have a support through many long nights suffers well. Because we suffer best when we suffer for what is worth it. And Jesus in his kingdom is worth it. That's the first choice. But a second choice is just as important in the moment of suffering and hostility. And that is this. In my moment of suffering, will it continue to be because of him? That is, in my moment of suffering, will I keep my Christ-likeness? Will I continue to love? Will I continue to speak? Will I continue to give my life in service to others? Or will I give in to bitterness, to snark, to anger, to whatever else? Because Jesus says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. And that is not a bug, it's a feature. The good news of God's gracious reign is announced by vulnerable sheep. See, we preach from a place of weakness where we can be wounded. But friends, there is an ocean of difference, an ocean of difference between self-sacrificial love and playing the victim. There's a chasm between those two things. Now, the kingdom of God arrived through a suffering servant Messiah, the Lord Jesus, who gave his life so that enemies might become friends. And that kingdom is now proclaimed by us, his suffering servants. Now, let me be absolutely clear. I do not want to suffer. I do not run towards suffering. I do not welcome it and chuck a party. 
I don't want to needlessly provoke anyone. But I am driven by these convictions. I would rather suffer than give up on God and his promises. And I would rather suffer if it means my friends and my enemies would know that love for themselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you loved us so much that you were prepared to send your son in order to suffer and die for us that we might no longer be your enemies but be your friends. And we thank you that you've called us to imitate this way of life, that we can proclaim as sheep among wolves and we will see the victory of the kingdom come by the weakness and humility of your servants, faithfully talking, faithfully loving, faithfully serving and even being prepared to sacrifice in order that others might be blessed. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.